All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz and Caridian. We're going to be picking up on page 112 with Holy Baptism. Of course, we're going to have a break from this class for the next two weeks. And when we reconvene, in all likelihood, we'll still be in baptism. Because this is a lengthy section, and I know we also have a lot of questions in regard to baptism on account of our, the time and place where we find ourselves. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Again, the Enchiridion is written for pastors and as a questionnaire to pastors. So that's why you don't always see this very simple foundation laid. The assumption is that the pastors know the foundation, then we'll be able to jump right into the material. So it does benefit us to pause and recall to mind what is Christ's institution of baptism. And that in its clearest form is found in Matthew chapter 28, where he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them whatsoever I have commanded. Even at the institution of baptism in our Lord's words, we see that baptism itself isn't the end goal. The goal or purpose is to make disciples. And there are two parts of making disciples. Baptism into the triune name, that's the first part, and teaching everything that the Lord himself has taught us. That's the second part. So baptism and teaching are to go hand in hand in creating and sustaining disciples of Christ. It's no mistake then when Christ institutes his other great sacrament, the sacrament of the altar or Eucharist or Holy Communion as we call it, that he gives this, as the text explicitly says, to his disciples. So the Lord's Supper is meant for those who are baptized and for those who are thoroughly catechized into the faith, and they receive this ultimate gift and sacrament. Okay, so with that foundation laid, we'll be poised to learn now from Chemnitz. Question 224, what is baptism? Luther answers, it is not simple water only, but that which is included in the divine command and connected with the word of God. There's more here than meets the eye. In the first place, the assumption that baptism is with water. I thank goodness, to my knowledge, the evangelical churches haven't reinvented this yet, even though they're, they're communing with graham crackers and root beer, whatever they feel like. To the best of my knowledge, they're not baptizing anything other than water, at least yet. Heaven forbid I just gave them an idea. Seeing lemonade baptisms next Sunday. But baptism itself, baptizo means I wash, and it's a very general word. It's a, it, in, the, in the text of scripture, it's not at first a theological word at all. In fact, you can see this, for example, in chapter 
uh, Mark chapter 7, where there's the washing of cups and even couches. And that's just the word baptism, the baptizing. So baptism means washing and to wash with water. That's just fundamentally what it means. You can look that up in any uh, dictionary you like, and you can see common references and uses of that word to just simply mean washing with water. So that's already assumed in the, in the language of baptism. Now, if it's a washing of water, then it, what is that washing of water to do? That's the question. And a common washing of water washes dirt off the body. Son gets done with a baseball game and he's covered in all that dust. Go take a shower. Right? Go baptize yourself. Go wash. <laughs> so he washes the dirt off his body. But if we are going to move from what is common to what is holy and what is natural to man to what Christ institutes, then we're going to see it's a washing away of something other than dirt from the body. What do you think that is? Sin, quite obviously. And there's plenty of scriptures that speak in exactly this way. Rise, get up, wash your sins away. So it is a washing and a washing away of sins. That's true whether it's John the Baptist's baptism or Christ's baptism. John says, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. It's a washing away of sins. When Christ gets into those waters as the Holy One, he's taking those sins upon himself and thus fulfilling all righteousness by being the sin bearer to put them away on the cross once and for all. Christ's baptism is also a washing away of sins, and that's the common thread that runs through both. But as, let's say, as an embryo is to a newborn, so is John's baptism to Christ's baptism. Christ's baptism is the, is the same as John's baptism in terms of its ontology and essence, but Christ's baptism is expanded and abounding and superabundant in the gifts and blessings that it brings. It's full-grown, as it were. It's where you don't see after all, um, the disciples and others get baptized by John, they don't have to get a post-resurrection baptism of Jesus. You just don't see that because it's assumed to be the whole. Um, it's, it's just you received it in, na- in its nascent form. Now it's come into full blossom and maturity with the baptisms you see in Acts, for example, and some of the charismatic gifts that frequently accompany, not always, but frequently accompany that baptism. Okay, so good so far in terms of laying a foundation and a a root baseline here for, there's a hand for um, what baptism is. We'll, we'll get here and then here. I was reading something the other day that said when Jesus was baptized, he took mm-hmm. all the students cast presence future on himself mm-hmm. and drowned them in the water, which meant that he didn't, take all this to the cross, that it was a done work before he went to the cross. So mm. I'm confused. Yeah, that sounds pretty silly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he, in, in the cross, I mean, in baptism, look, and, and I don't think we have to get too technical with it. To simply be born as a man, he becomes the sin bearer. That's, what else is he doing? Just having a lark? Is he just deciding, hey, this would be a fun thing to do? Obviously, he becomes man 
for us and for our salvation, to bear our sin and be our Savior. So um, it's just in baptism we see this reality explained in the scriptures that it's for, for the fulfilling of all righteousness. Now, very frequently in our context, that's taken like, well, for the fulfilling of Jesus' righteousness. <laughs> Was Jesus not already righteous? Indeed, that's the very re- rationale for why John the Baptist didn't want to baptize him. And he said to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me for baptism? It's already understood that Jesus is righteous. Jesus doesn't need his righteousness fulfilled. Whose righteousness is he fulfilling? Ours. All righteousness. And so by going into those waters then, and again, just by way of analogy, if the bathtub gets stopped up and you take a shower and you look down, it's gross. That's all the dirt from the body has been washed off into that water. By analogy, that's what's happening in baptism. It is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is a washing away of sins. Those waters are impure, and Christ gets into them uh, for the fulfilling of all righteousness. So we see embodied and fulfilled the entire paradigm of Christ's coming. His incarnation, his baptism, his crucifixion, all of one piece. No need to separate those two unless you don't like the cross, which a lot of people don't like the cross these days. And a lot of people want to make the empty the cross of its meaning and value and turn it into an accident or a story of God's love or a story of our impenitence. Or they want to uh, strip it of, its, of what the word of God actually says the cross is. And they want to import their own theology into that. And so that's all I'm detecting there is a mechanism by which they can deceive and try to achieve that but unknown in the history of the church also, this kind of thing. Okay, and it was the same, same basic question? Or? Yeah, okay, please. I guess that questions that are just um, kind of seem mysterious to me. The, uh, the, it's true that Jesus himself never baptized anyone directly. Is that? Mm-hmm. Seems to be the case. So that seems strange. And then also, um, um, you were saying before, the baptism of John was, was, was made full after Jesus, so it wasn't as if anybody that was baptized by John, I guess mm-hmm. John, uh, would, need, would need to be baptized again, right? Mm-hmm. That's the general rule. And then, the, so that's, that's really interesting. And then, um, I guess we assume that all of, Jesus' disciples were baptized, but are there any scriptural references to specific uh, baptisms of, of the disciples? You know, The short, superficial answer is no. The deeper, maybe longer and less satisfying answer is yes, but only kind of. So if you dig around in the in the opening chapters and work out the chronology and timeline, remember when Jesus goes to Um, I think it's Peter and Andrew, and says, follow me. And you've probably heard sermons where the pastor's like, look at this great faith. They just met Jesus and followed him. That's not true. That's not what happened. If you look at the timeline, you compare the Gospels together and work it out. They were all aware of John and his baptism. 
they were all aware that he had pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as the one whose sandal straps John was not worthy to untie, as the one who, though he was coming after John, was before John. And so the disciples know full well, and when Jesus calls them to follow him, they know that that's the one who's calling them, which is why they get up and go. So you can find evidences of their awareness of and participation in John's ministry. Inferred is that they'd be baptized, because all the texts tell us that that's what John the, wait, what was his, how does that go, John the, oh, Baptist, that that's what he was doing, that that's his major program. Of course, he was preaching Christ and preaching repentance, but the fundamental call to action of John is to be baptized in preparation for the coming of Christ. You can even see a nuanced difference between a baptism of preparation for the coming of Christ, you know, making the mountains low and the valleys high, making straight the path of the Lord. And then once the Lord comes, is crucified and raised, you can see that baptism go not from a uh, preparation for the coming of Christ, but as a participation in the crucified and risen Christ. So you can even see it chronologically shift, even if only by way of nuance. Please. I think you just said if you were baptized by John, it was not necessary to be baptized with Christ's baptism. Mm -hmm. Yet in Acts uh, 19, Paul comes across some disciples, and then they were baptized again. Yeah. Um, so is that, how are we to interpret that? Is it yeah. optional? or <laughs> No, there's something else going on there. Because, uh, and, and we can go read it if you, if you want to get more detail or if I need to be more accurate. But you remember that he says, um, and so, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but so you received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they were like, the Holy Spirit, who's that? We don't even know of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the problem. Because Paul's going, you were John's disciples. John saw the Holy Spirit fall upon Jesus of Nazareth, which is how John knew that this was the Christ, that this was the Lamb of God. You were disciples of John. You were baptized yourself by John. John's entire ministry is permeated with speech of the Holy Spirit But tell me again, you don't know who the Holy Spirit is? (laughs) Yeah. So what is this? This is um, these these are people who are not catechized and don't know apples from oranges. And Paul says, no, we're going to not rebaptize you. We're going to baptize you. So this is an important pastoral precedent. And in fact, you can read the whole book of Acts this way. It's maybe one of the most fruitful ways to read it. That Acts functions as an early pastoral. That is to say, how the church and how the pastors are to respond to a variety of circumstances. What is the church's practice when there's conflict? We have a council. What is the church, what is a pastor's practice when he encounters someone like the Ethiopian eunuch? What is the pastor's practice when he encounters somebody who claims to be baptized with a Christian baptism but has no idea who the Holy Spirit is? (laughs) And various other kinds of 
occasions that arise. And from this pastoral, from this handbook, the pastors of the church and the church herself can understand how the apostles would have treated these circumstances, and it gives us a baseline for action. So in the very same way that if I met someone who said, oh yeah, I was baptized in a Lutheran church 30 years ago, so you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were like, who's that? I'd say, let's get you baptized, not let's rebaptize you. The first baptism is in question, and in question to the point of being invalid. You don't know anything. So let's get you baptized properly in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, that also has the effect of baptism in view, because the whole point of baptism is certainty. The whole point of baptism is that you can be absolutely certain that it was given to you individually and specifically, that that promise of God is applied to you. Chemnitz, we're going to see here momentarily, uh, draws this aspect of baptism out. That's the real strength, is it's absolute certainty. And baptism's particular strength, when compared, say, to the Lord's Supper, is that it's a one-time event that's over and done with and is complete and finished and irrevocable. The gifts and blessings of, benef- of baptism are irrevocable. Now, they can be rendered null and void by someone's unbelief, but that's a different question. Baptism is, to use our analogy from last week, you've been given the briefcase full of a million dollars. It's yours, whether you believe it's there or not. Now, if you don't believe it's there, it's not going to do you any good. Okay? But that doesn't mean that it's not still a million bucks sitting in a briefcase. It doesn't mean that it's not still the act of God by which he has claimed you as his own, washed your sins away, etc. And we'll be able to get into that a little more as we progress, if you like. Okay, did I leave anything on the table? Anything you want to touch on at this point? Yeah. Would it be too much of a stretch to say that when Christ spoke of himself as living water, that if, if you took in that living water, if you followed Christ, yeah. that's effectively baptism? Mm, I would, no, I wouldn't put that against uh, actual baptism. But there is, I mean, there is a beautiful point here. We're, we're so divorced from the natural world, you would never dream of drinking out of a stream. <laughs> Right? Unless, you, unless you want to be booked up for the next two weeks. Uh, so we're very detached. But if you think a little bit more um, organically and maybe um, connected with the world is what I mean, connected with creation, you would jump into a river and simultaneously be bathed and simultaneously drink. Even as you're bending over the river washing your face, you'd slurp some up. So washing and drinking, all the blessings and benefits of baptism, aren't all the blessings and benefits of water, in our minds, they're very, they're very bifurcated. A shower is one thing, and drinking is another thing. And for the rest of the world and the rest of its history, they're not really bifurcated that way. So when Christ talks about being the living water, the, the first century mind, to say nothing of most of the other minds who have ever existed, just see, see water as yes, Drinking and refreshing to be taken in internally for our good and blessing, and then water that washes externally 
as well. And so both of those blessings are one. So where Jesus talks about him being the water or where we see water flowing from his side or um, he's the temple that, that the water is flowing out of and these kinds of images, we should absolutely be thinking in terms of baptism um, and uh, just the whole, holistically, I mean, of which baptism by water in the name of the Father, Holy, Son, and Holy Spirit would be a part. Yes, sir. When I was a young Christian, a, a man of faith, a Christ, another Christian came to me and said, were you, were you baptized by the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. That term. How should I have answered that, or how should I understand that question in the context of how we're looking at baptism by the whole, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yeah, there's any number of ways. It's just going to depend on who you're talking to and whether, you, whether or not you think you can help them or whether or not you just need to confound them and move on. Um, but let's assume you're dealing with somebody charitably um, and somebody who's acting in good faith. Then you might say, where is this baptism of the Holy Spirit of which you speak? So where in the scripture? And then take a look at whatever the source text is. Usually it has something to do with Pentecost, which by no means negates baptism with water and the name of God. So then the task just becomes showing them that there are these, um, there, there is this way of speaking of baptism. And really, um, you know, ultimately where you want to get them is that it's not as though Pentecost is one baptism and um, baptism with water is another baptism. Remember when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, the church is baptized with the Spirit and with fire, evidenced by the tongues of fire on the disciples. As soon as they go out, what do they do? They begin preaching. Peter's sermon is recorded. And as the hearers, over, well over 3,000 are hearing Peter, they say, they're cut to the heart and they say, what must we do? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So look at the connection. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church with spirit and with fire. Remember, John comes baptizing with water, Christ with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Tongues of fire on their heads, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and it instantly creates baptism with water. To be baptized with water for the forgiveness of sins, and for the gift of receiving the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? That they might likewise proclaim Christ, cut others to the heart, and have them be baptized with water and the Word of God. So it is an artificial dichotomy, a false dichotomy, and an artificial distinction to say, well, uh, the baptism of Pentecost with fire and the Spirit is different from the baptism of water and the Word. That's to pit two things against each other that Scripture never pits against each other. Rather, the baptism of the Spirit and the fire is primary, and what occurred, by the way, 2,000 years ago is an ongoing reality today. Pentecost is a perpetual reality of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church, and that materializes in baptism of water and the Word. So, baptism of water and the word is, pardon the pun, downstream. It's part of Pentecost and downstream. And it's a, it's a great mistake if we think, well, Pentecost was over uh, in the first century. 
No, there is indeed a cessation of many of the supernatural proofs by which God himself was verifying the proclaimed word of the apostles. There is a cessation of some of those first century gifts, but not the reality of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church of God. That is a continuous reality, as evidenced by the fact that we are here, as evidenced by the fact that apart from the Holy Spirit, no man can say that Jesus is Lord. And so we know that the Holy Spirit is perpetually poured out upon the church because Christians perpetually claim and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So baptism is downstream of Pentecost, and then there's not two baptisms, but one baptism, one pouring out of the Holy Spirit with all of its manifestations and gifts given. Does that help somewhat? Hopefully? Okay. That's ultimately where you want to get them. Yeah. So the question I have... um Disciples, but only John the Baptist had baptized. And even before the day of Pentecost, how is the Holy Spirit part of that, that formula? Uh, as far as, you expect what John baptized, and you say they don't need to be baptized again? So, yeah, so maybe a helpful frame or distinction And this, by the way, applies to the entire ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus, as well as the entire Old Testament, of which John is the peak and pinnacle, and the New Testament, of which Christ is the peak and pinnacle. But we can talk in terms of continuity and discontinuity. Okay, So what would be an element of continuity? Well, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' baptism is, rise, uh, Paul, get up and wash away your sins, right? So... There's a continuity between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus in respect to uh, forgiveness of sins. So far, so good? Okay. Now, what about the Spirit? We don't see exactly that continuity. We don't see the Holy Spirit being poured out in the baptism of John the way we see it being poured out after Pentecost. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit is nowhere in the Old Testament or nowhere until Jesus is raised from the dead? No, it doesn't mean that. Paul prays, Paul, David, sorry, (laughs) too many names. David prays, uh, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. Take not thy spirit away from me. What spirit is that? It's the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is operative in the Old Testament saints, and is operative in the church prior to Pentecost. So there's a continuity. The Holy Spirit worked before and continues to work and will work to the close of the age. But there's a discontinuity in the way that manifests and the way that looks. What would be the manner of discontinuity? Well, Christ says himself that he will pour out the Holy Spirit. That's a new way in which he's pouring out the Holy Spirit. And that that Holy Spirit will manifest itself immediately in, what, 3,000 plus conversions. And in the gospel going forth, not just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, nor just to geographical Judah, but to the ends of the earth. And accompanied with that outpouring of the Holy Spirit are all kinds of supernatural gifts. 
So would you say that that's a matter of discontinuity then? Yeah, there's something new happening. So this is a helpful way to think, not just in terms of the baptism of John versus the baptism of Jesus, but also the ministry of John versus the ministry of Jesus. Remember the, why do, why does, why do you, the disciples of John fast, but not yours? And Jesus says, because the bridegroom is with them. Remember the old wineskins and the new wineskins, that business? Um, even John saying, I must decrease, he must Increase So there's continuity between the Old and New Testaments. Probably doing this the wrong way from your vantage point. Between the Old and New Testaments. But discontinuity. If there wasn't dis, some, level, some amount of discontinuity, there'd be no distinction between the Old and the New. There'd be no distinction between Jesus and John. If there was no continuity, then Jesus would be doing a whole new thing. And he would effectively say, I came to destroy the law and the prophets. <laughs> Because I'm doing a whole new thing. I'm doing something totally different than them. But he doesn't. He says, I came not to destroy them, but to fulfill them. So it's, there's continuity, but then there's discontinuity because Jesus is bringing something new. He's bringing in the fullness of, the, of what God's gifts are for the end of the age. That's really all the church has ever meant by the, the last times or the end times or the uh, final, um, you know, the final, um, what, what would you say, um, now in these last days, so yeah, the final epoch of this age, uh, the final chapter of this age, all the church has ever meant is that this is what God has given us in Christ. This is the peak and the epitome, and there's not going to be anything more until Christ returns, and it's the close of the age. doesn't really matter to us whether it goes for, you know, whether it was five years after the ascension, or 50 years, or 500, or 5,000. It doesn't really matter. We don't expect anything more from God until Christ returns, and that's the close of the age. So we're then definitionally in the last times, and times, final chapter, final epoch of this age. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Just a quick point of clarification. I think I tracked everything you were saying just then. Am I, to, am I right in understanding that the Holy Spirit poured out after a certain period because the Holy Spirit was only available to God's chosen people up until that point. He wasn't going around the ends of the earth awakening people to faith and granting faith to anybody, only God's people, until after when you said now he's being poured out. Is that the right? Kind of, yeah. I mean, more or less correct. So in the, in the Old Testament, to be sure, we see people outside of uh, the nation of Israel um, and I'm not trying to be technical with that definition, because even prior to the uh, Red Sea, some of the Egyptians went with the Israelites. Why? They were convinced by the plagues that this is the one true God. They were converted. So even at the Exodus, it's this hilarious thing. You've got Jews and Gentiles, as it were, Hebrews and Gentiles, going through the... So, at all points in time, Gentiles are incorporated, Old Testament, into the people of God. And yet, not in the way that you see after Pentecost. Because at, at Pentecost, I mean, it's an incredible thing that's happened. All the, the apostles, I mean, especially Paul and company, go out to the ends of the earth. The gospel has spread throughout the globe. Uh, this is a this is a great evidence that the holy or that um, the unholy spirit. I recognize that voice, that the unholy spirit has been bound 
while the Holy Spirit does his work and goes around the, around the nations converting people in mass. So that you see a, a kind of continuity in the fact that God has always included the Gentiles, but a discontinuity in the fact that relative between the old and the new, the old was minimal relative to the new. Where, I mean, what does the new look like? The church on earth looks predominantly Gentile, whereas the church of the Old Testament would have been predominantly Hebrew. Yes, sir? In, in commenting or understanding the Holy Spirit's functioning in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the distinction, is it proper to say that the, in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came upon the person and in the New Testament the Holy Spirit indwells? Is that No, I don't like any of those distinctions. I, I, those are too neat, too tidy, and not reflective of it all, at all of the... Yeah, and I, and I know that's not your distinction. I know that's a popular kind of Pentecostal distinction. Yeah, well, um, so, but there is a difference then, as you articulate I don't, But I don't think that there's a difference in... I mean, I th- do I think that the Holy Spirit indwelt David? Absolutely. That's why he says, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Um, do I think that the Holy Spirit indwelt all the Old Testament saints? I absolutely do. I think without his indwelling, they would not have been converted. They would have not have looked, to, looked forward to the Messiah and looked to the divine service of Yahweh in their midst, uh, clothed in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. So I, I absolutely hold that, um, that the uh, Holy Spirit indwelt believers uh, of all times and all places. I think any position other than that is not scripturally tenable. I think it's an artificial distinction. And, and then the promises as a follow-up, the promises that Christ gave that the Holy Spirit would convict you of your sin, would pray for you, would guide you, all yeah. those were functioning then in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You can even see this in, um, in uh, various psalms. I'm thinking of Psalm 119 just because it's fresh in my mind, where it is um, the Holy Spirit who grants uh, repentance, who grants um, contrition, and that God, God pours out his Spirit upon his people, um, even in the Old Testament psalms. And so yeah, I don't see any meaningful distinction there. I... Any, and the distinction of like a pawn versus in, I just don't think it's textually tenable. It sounds like something, you know, it just sounds fabricated, and it doesn't seem like it would actually fit. Um, so I, I, would, I would reject that. I would see that, there's a, that it's actually continuity. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, con, is continuous from the Old Testament to the New. What, is, what does Peter mean then in Acts 2 when he says... Be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, and you will, uh, yeah, for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think he means you will become part of this Pentecost reality, this new outpouring that the Lord is doing, that is continuous to this day, by the way, and that um, you will be incorporated into the Christian church. So, like another, I, I mean, in keeping with this, it's like, would you say that the church existed before Pentecost? Yes. I mean, a case could be made either way, right? What does the church consist of? True believers? 
Okay, well then the church has consisted from, or has existed from Adam and Eve. Forward. And then, but what you don't find is that language of ecclesia, of called out, of church. You don't find that language, or at least you don't find it as the mainstream description of the people of God until the new. So some people will say that Pentecost is the birth of the church. And in some ways they're wrong because the church has existed from Adam and Eve, but in some ways they're right because the church is a new, it's in continuity with, but it's also blossomed into fullness to where it's new. So I know this can be all very confusing, but it's really very simple. A newborn baby that's born, okay? Hard to believe, but I was once a newborn baby. Now I'm a a scraggly, ornery old pastor. Okay, but there's a continuity, isn't there? I'm the same person, and yet I'm vastly different. I've gone from newborn to adult, and there's a vast difference between the two, even though there's an ontology that's one. That makes sense? So that's really the way that the whole... The whole of the scriptures can be understood that in the Old Testament, you're dealing with, by way of analogy, newborns. And in the New Testament, you're dealing, by way of analogy, with adults. That is to say, the church is one ontology throughout the ages. But there's a distinction from childhood to adulthood. And how do you describe that? Well, it's the same person, it's the same arms, it's the same muscles. Is it? Yeah and no. <laughs> because there's maturity and strength and all the other things that come along. And that's analogous to the Old Testament church becoming the New Testament church, or becoming the church proper. The Old Testament children of God becoming the church of God in its full maturity and its full blossoming forth. So these are, these are good ways to start wrapping your mind around continent, finding biblical continuity and biblical discontinuity. Finding that the baby is still the adult, the adult is still the baby, that's continuity, but the adult is different than the baby in key ways, that's discontinuity. And you'll see that same, that'll help you, by way of analogy, reflect on the Old and New Testament realities. I just wanted to ask if it's not taking it too far in your analogy to consider that if the church was a baby in the Old Testament, that's why God did so many things for his people. Visible signs and wonders and promises and act like that's what you do for a baby. It's like Mm -hmm. you're so involved. Yeah. If we are the analogy of the adult, we're given instructions were given God's word were given God's gifts but also now asked to believe in faith in a more mature mm-hmm. and support each other as adults would do mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean I think you bring up an interesting point and it's it's one that lots of uh, folks have considered and that's um, aside from the analogy is there actually a sense in which mankind corporately is growing up and uh, reaches its fullness corporately. And here what I mean by humanity is I really mean believers on account of the fallen world. 
that believers have gone from embryonic form, conceptual form in Adam and Eve, embryonic form, raised up all the way to the fullness that when Christ comes corporately, there's a fullness and maturation of the people of God, the humanity of God, the corporate man of God into the image, a uh, greater image and likeness of Christ. Um, and that's an interesting theory. I don't, I don't know. There's some, it's, it strikes me with some, maybe having some truth to it, but I just don't know. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail. Okay. Well, that's what we're doing today, I think. <laughs> People die. Babies, children, teenagers, adults, and old people. I've been asked, what's the resurrected body going to look like in heaven? Are there going to be all ages in heaven? What's your answer to that? Yeah, I, my, my safe answer is I don't know. The Bible doesn't reveal. Um, the, I can tell you the general answer is, so remember when John is given the vision in heaven and gathered around the throne, they're all standing They're all clothed. They all have palm branches in their hands. From that, probably the vast majority of church fathers and theologians infer that there's some sort of uh, way in which God envisions you. So, I mean, I don't know, 18, 24, who cares, right? There's some way that God envisions you as um, the mature version of you. Okay, And that whether pretty much no matter what age you die at, that's how you are. And then, um, that's not to say that, like, you can put nuance on top of that. And do you remember, um, I think I always go to this as my example, because it's a good one, but do you remember how, like, Tolkien will describe the elves in Lord of the Rings? Okay, they're immortal, but that doesn't mean they all look like they're the same age. So even once they come to maturation, that you can, and they don't go past maturation, you know, so, so you're little, you get to physical maturation, and then what happens in real life? You start getting little again. Gravity's pulling you down, everything's pulling you down, your back's pulling you down, okay, and then you end up little in a bed somewhere if you live long enough. All right, so that's the normal course. But for the elves, this is all going to work to our analogy, the elves grow from little into maturation, and they don't go little again. Whatever that point of maturation is for each specific elf, that's your maturation. And then as you, quote-unquote, age, because you're immortal as an elf, you don't get, like, old or decrepit or wrinkly or, you know, gravity doing you a bad one. You get, instead, a kind of deepening and a kind of maturation of the face where people can look at you and understand you've been around longer than this one, even, even though it's not decay. So we mistake maturation for decay on account of the fall, but it needn't necessarily be decay. It could just be maturation. It's where you could look at someone and say, well, you've reached this peak, this epitome of maturation, and yet I can tell that you've been around much longer than this other. Okay, so by way of uh, Tolkien's analogy there, that's, I think, a fair and accurate representation of how church fathers have, on the basis of texts like John's Revelation, where the souls all appear to be mature, that whether you die as a baby or die old in age, you kind of reach this epitome of, you kind of, uh, your soul looks like this epitome of maturation. But even within that epitome of maturation, you are going to recognize that there is um, a kind of deepening of the features amongst those that are older or wiser or whatever, more, more progressed along, and those who aren't. So, 
you'd be able to, in theory, you'd be able to look at someone and say, well, you, you have the appearance of a full-grown adult, but I can tell you're brand new, right? Or you have the appearance of, the, of a full-grown adult, but I can tell that you've been around the block a few times. So that, you know, all of these are just theories, just speculations. I'm just trying to give you a general, broad representation for um, how, the, how the church has tended to think about these things. I mean, it'd be fun if heaven was filled with literal babies, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I could think of nothing better than holding babies for an eternity. That'd be great. But I doubt it. I've finally come to the realization, it's just astounding to me, how the continuity between the Old and the New Testament, that the people really were looking forward to the Messiah. The men from the East, they go to Herod, Mm -hmm. and where is he supposed to be born? And right away they say, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But they have these verses from Isaiah, unto us a child is born. And was it mysterious to them? The government shall be on upon his shoulder. They knew all these verses. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it hit me, you know, the Greeks go to Jesus in Holy Week and say, we want to ask you some questions. This was around the world, mm-hmm. this awareness mm-hmm. of Christ coming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great to reflect on that, that reality. So it's why I'm a fan of the wise men being in the nativity scene. Even though we know historically they're not, and you always get some guy like swinging in on a rope, pushing his glasses back up, being like, actually, you know, and like trying to correct you. And you're like, yeah, I know, friend. Okay, but why they're there is to show that the Gentiles also longed for the Christ, and the Gentiles also receive him. And that's, that's why I'm a fan of it. I'm also a, fa- a fan of the A-frames. Well, actually, they didn't have that kind of thing in first century Bethlehem. Who, okay, but you know what they do have? Churches. <laughs> So it evokes the image of a church, and that's and what a beautiful reflection that is. So we don't have to be overly literalistic with everything in order to be mature and intelligent. I mean, that's actually kind of a kind of a marker of midwitticism, because what what's actually you know oh gosh yeah the normal curve where you've kind of got the drooling guy and then the monkish guy. Uh, I mean, in this case, you've got the little children that love the nativity and the monkish established theologian who loves the nativity and the the midwit in the middle going, oh, actually, it's not like that at all. Uh, Who cares? We, We understand that it wasn't like that, but what is being communicated by the nativity is far deeper. Where does the Bible say that uh, she rode on a donkey? Well, it doesn't, but it's a beautiful image laden with biblical meaning. Uh, where does it say that the ox and the ass were there next to Jesus? Well, it doesn't. Okay, we all know that. But guess who does speak of the ox and the ass? I, Isaiah. And that they know their master when the, pe- when it, the master's people do not. And, um, and other things. I mean, it's, that's, it's deeper than just that. So I love that all these things show up in the nativity, even though actually the Bible doesn't say. It's like, who cares? I know that. But all these, other th- but all these things gathered here teach us what the Bible does say about the coming of Christ. And that's the whole point. Yeah. All right. Um, back to baptism, I guess. Sound all right? <laughs> 
So continuity and discontinuity is really, really helpful in theology um, because it'll help you get an accurate bead on, on what's going on and what's changed from the new. And then after Luther gives his answer that, it's not sim- that baptism is not simple water only, but that which is included in the divine command. So that means that a baptism, to be a Christian baptism, needs to be in accordance with Christ's command. So I gave the example of what happens if a little sister baptizes her little sister in the bathtub or something. That's not in keeping with Christ's command, with his institution or ordinance. So that's the first thing. It needs to be in accord with the divine command. And then second, it needs to be connected with the word of God. So um, a valid Christian baptism is a baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's not going to be water that does the work, but the word of God that is in and with the water. So the, the word is always going to be the powerful element that operates in and with the water to be a washing away of sins. Okay, Philip Melanchthon answers this way. Immersion in water, it's just a common way of talking about baptism. It's not any dogmatic thing. Um, of course, baptism can be by immersion or, I don't even mind, you know, I know it's pejorative. People say, oh, were you just sprinkled? But I actually kind of love that because uh, that's the word used for Moses at the, at the uh, Mount Sinai, the foot of Mount Sinai, sprinkling the people with the blood of the lambs. And I have no problem at all with being sprinkled by the water and blood that flow from Christ's side and thereby being baptized into the new covenant. No problem at all. So whether you're immersed or sprinkled, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, nowhere in the scriptures does it indicate how much water needs to be used. If you want to be real honor, you can say, well, how would you ever know if it's a real circumcision or not? Maybe you better get rid of the whole thing just to be safe. The same thing works in terms of baptism. There's never any indication of how much water needs to be used. In fact, um, common practice uh, in extreme circumstances um, where there is uh, very little water or no water at all, um, I mean, there are, there are accounts where even uh, someone has licked their finger and baptized a soldier dying in the trenches. I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't see that as a valid baptism. Um, times where just baptism is done with just a single drop of water on account of not wanting to drench someone laying in their deathbed. So Christ never indicates how much water. So whether by immersion or by sprinkling, either is fine. I think immersion has a kind of powerful symbolism to it, um, a la Romans 6 that we'll get into, of the being buried with Christ and raised with Christ, to have your whole body be buried under the waters and pulled up out of the waters, has a kind of, so yeah, in a perfect world, if we could do immersions, and not the kind of hot tub immersions, not the kind of like fish tank immersions where you can see everything going on, but a, a real baptismal, you know, uh, um, um, yeah, what, what do you call them? I'm losing my, I don't know if you really call it a font. can't believe I'm skipping on the word here. But the, the idea of, like, if you see these in the, um, some of the old church depictions, uh, like early church depictions, 
Uh, you've got these baptistries where you'd like lay down in. It almost looks like a tomb. Sometimes they're in the shape of a cross, and you actually lay down in it and then come up out of it. I'm fine with that. I mean, I think in a perfect world, that's what we'd have. In a perfect world, all that symbolism is there, but we don't live in a perfect world. So we give thanks to God for baptism, whether it's with a lot of water or a little water. Okay. Philip Melanchthon, immersion in water was instituted by the Son of God with the declaration of the words, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, testifying that since this testimony was divinely instituted, he who is immersed with the declaration of these words is reconciled to God for Christ's sake and is sanctified by the Holy Spirit to life eternal. All right, two fine answers given that clearly teach what the scriptures teach. What are the essential parts of baptism? One, the element of water. Lots of scripture references given, but you hardly even need that because, again, what is baptism but washing with water? That's definitionally what it is. Yeah, water needs to be there to have a Christian baptism. And second, the word of God needs to be there. So water and the word. And the third is, it's not really a part, but it's the way in which it's done, and that's in accord with Christ's divine command. Those are the three aspects of what makes a baptism. And here, when we're looking at the essential parts, there are two, water and the word. Picking back up with Chemnitz, the word of God, and he has Ephesians 5.26, cleansing with the washing of water by the word. So even in that phrase, cleansing with the washing of the water by the word, you can see the importance of the word in and with the water. He continues, namely, the command of Christ regarding the conferring of baptism, Matthew 28, 19, and the very promise of grace, Mark 16, 16. Of course, that's whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So Christ always puts baptism and faith together. He never once, never once do any of the scriptures pit baptism and faith against each other, even though that is the common theme of evangelicalism. Never once do the scriptures pit Christ and baptism against each other. But that is a common theme of American evangelicalism. So you can just take note that they're doing something that no New Testament author, no, not, neither Christ nor any of the apostles ever do. Well, I thought I was saved by baptism, therefore I don't need, or saved by faith, therefore I don't need baptism. Or my sins are forgiven by faith, therefore I don't need the Lord's Supper. No one ever in all the scriptures argues this way. So if God doesn't argue that way, who do you think is arguing that way? <laughs> um, nowhere in all the scriptures does it say, well, since Christ, you have, you have forgiveness of sins in Christ alone, you don't need baptism. Or, I don't know why you all are clinging on to baptism so much, O Corinthians, when Christ died for you. <laughs> Never once in all the scriptures do you have any kind of arguments that pit baptism or the Lord's Supper against Christ. But we hear this all the time in evangelicalism. If God doesn't argue that way, then who do you think does? Okay, let's look at uh, 226. It is also baptism when the words of institution are spoken over the elements of water, and yet there is no one who is baptized. So is it also a baptism? Um, If no one is baptized, (laughs) what do you think? By no means, we're keeping it simple here. The words of institution, of course, are 
I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because that's how Christ commands us or to baptize or institutes it. So not to be confused with the words of institution in regard to the supper, the words of institution in regard to baptism, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If a baptism is performed um, and there's no one who is baptized, this is not a baptism. For when Christ says, baptize them, he surely wants and commands that baptism be an act in which someone is baptized with the water that is connected with the word of God. And therefore, Paul also calls baptism a washing. Ephesians 5.26, Titus 3.5. But baptism was not instituted that either bells or other creatures... But that nations, Matthew 28, 19, that is, those who have been born of flesh, John 3, 6, be baptized for remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Okay, so what's going on here is in the medieval period, there got to be all these ceremonial baptisms, washings of uh, bells, and I don't know what else, um, candelabras, I think, and this, that, and the other thing. And so it's all a bunch of nonsense apart from Christ's command, which is to baptize people, all nations being made disciples through baptism and teaching. All right, 227, the administration of baptism. Why is not the general statement, baptize all nations, used, but I baptize thee? Um, So this has to do with the liturgical use of the words of institution. Here's Chemnitz's answer. For this reason, namely, that this is distinctive of the sacraments, that by them everyone is dealt with, personally and specifically, Acts 2.38, so that in this way every one of the believers might have in his heart as a sure testimony, pledge, and seal that the promise of grace is specifically offered and applied to him. And then a slew of scripture references given. That's just the point is the pastor is standing in the stead and by the command of Christ. Christ obviously says to his apostles, you go and baptize and teach. And so then when a pastor says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's showing himself to be in that office granted him by Christ and at the same time not claiming any power or authority of his own. Saying, I baptize you in my name. (laughs) Saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's God's name, it's God's work, it's God's action, of which I am a part, just as he is commanded. So I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's, uh, let's do 2.28, and then we'll call it a day. What is the meaning of these words? I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. First, this is signified that baptism is administered in the name that is on command of God the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So in the first place, it brings to mind that God himself, the triune God, has instituted and commanded this blessing to be given to us. Second, this is indicated that we are baptized in the name that is in or with invocation of the true God, or as the Greek words say, into. And that's true. It actually says into the name, which means that what's happening in baptism is not, you know, when you go up to the moon and you plant your flag and you go, I claim this 
moon in the name of the United States. Um, while there may be some ways in which that applies to baptism, that's not exactly what's going on in baptism. In baptism, you are being baptized into the name of God. <clears throat> when you were born, you were born into a name. Now, you were given your individual name. The individual name I was given was Jeremy, but I was born into a family name, Rody. And so I am a member of that earthly family, the family of Rody. Christ now institutes that we be baptized into another name beyond that. And that is the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we are born into his family and bear his name. That's what it means to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be Christians, is God is truly our Father, and we are members of his eternal family. So your last, last name is actually the name of God, and the identity and family of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so into the name, that is, and then into the knowledge and invocation of the true God, who is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then third, last but not least, This, above all, is the thrust of those words that in the administration of baptism, a minister does not function in his own name. It doesn't matter um, who baptizes you. It doesn't matter if the preacher is uh, good or bad, faithful or unfaithful, scandalous or not scandalous, a true believer or not a true believer, because he isn't baptizing you in his own name. He's baptizing you. So, obviously, when you're going to be baptized, you want to be baptized by a legitimate minister of the legitimate church, okay? Don't misunderstand me. But if he turns out to be a fraud, it doesn't mean your baptism's a fraud. Because it's not based on his name or authority, but based on the name and authority of God himself. Some church fathers, I think Luther among them, have even made this scandalous point that the, that the devil himself could baptize you as long as he uses the water and the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's a valid baptism. Because it's not predicated upon who's baptizing. It's predicated upon the name of God. Yes, sir. If parents were non-believers and a child or baby were baptized against their own wishes, would that make baptism be bad? If the parents did not believe in like a grandparent or something? Absolutely hallucinogenic happening with the microphone. I'm sorry. I feel like a... Right. Okay, so if someone is baptized against their will... The parent, okay, the parents baptize their child, but their child doesn't have a say? Um, I, my question is, let's say that a grandparent... Um, took their child to be mm-hmm. baptized, and the parents did not believe they prevented. Mm-hmm. But the, the grandparent took, or even cases where, in a Catholic hospital, where a, a nun was secretly baptized a baby in the hospital mm. because their parents were non-believers. Boy, that's a big question with a lot of possibilities there. So, in, I'll, I'm not going to be able to do a good job. I'm not going to be able to do a good job in in the tiny little amount of space we've got here. Maybe we can talk about it after the class, and for the benefit of those listening online, maybe we can entertain that when we get back. How's that? Um, It's a good question. Okay, so let's just finish out this paragraph. Uh, We're in third top of 113, and then we'll be done. Mm -hmm. So this, above all, is the thrust of those words, that in the administration of baptism, a minister does not function in his own name but that of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, himself present, deals through the outward ministry with the one to be baptized, 
so that God the Father, because of the merit of the Son, receives him into grace and sanctifies him by the Holy Spirit unto righteousness and life eternal, so that in the name is the same as in the stead and place of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's that language that I used of in the stead and by the command of. In the stead and place of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as Paul says in that same passage regarding the preaching of the gospel and absolution. Okay, so the gifts are given by Christ to the church to execute through her pastors. That's the normative way in which baptism is to be received. There are exceptional circumstances in which baptisms are performed. Uh, Where those circumstances are emergency or or somehow legitimized by the needs, a baptism is a baptism. And we shouldn't shouldn't worry about that or be concerned. So the baptism of many... uh, that many parents or fathers or midwives performed when a pastor could not come and it was not certain if the baby would make it long enough for the pastor to come. Uh, Baptisms are done. Those are valid Christian baptisms, no problem. Um, Where grandma kind of schemes around the parents to get her grandchild baptized, is the baptism itself in that case valid? Yes, a baptism is is a baptism. Um, But should that be done Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) So that's going to be a more nuanced conversation. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you.